Hello, kindred spirits, and welcome to the Modcast, the podcast of the Ella Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from the beautiful campus of the University of Prince Edward Island. We are so glad that you've tuned in. This is Modcast Season 1, Episode 9. I'm your host, Dr. Brenton Dickinson. In our quest to discover cutting-edge scholarship about the life and works of Lucy Ma Montgomery and join imaginative readers throughout the world, we welcome to the microphone our special guest, Jenny Litster. Jenny lives in Edinburgh, Scotland, with her partner and their two daughters. Her doctoral thesis examined the Scottish context of Ella Montgomery and was completed at the University of Edinburgh in 2001. She traveled to Prince Edward Island in 1994 for the first international symposium at the Ella Montgomery Institute and has returned six times to present her research findings at UPEI. She has taught American history and worked in adult education and research and policy for many years. She currently gets her kicks as a virtual tour guide, delivering seminars and courses for context travel. Jenny, welcome to the Modcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm going to correct your pronunciation already, but oh. it is, of course, Edinburgh. 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 Yeah. Borough. It's actually only got three letters, uh, five <laughs> letters, if you think about it. E N B R A. Embra. Embra. There you go. Embra. So uh, my family is from. Uh, just outside of Paisley originally. Uh, uh, so we're, West Coast. Uh, yeah. So we just didn't even consider the rest of, <laughs> you know, where you live to be Scotland, I don't think. Right. So, um, That's true. yeah. To be fair, we've, to be, we fled, right? Like, so we fled Scotland. <laughs> so there's not much I can, uh, I could say about that. I, um, I'm ninth generation Scottish Canadian. We came in 1820 is when, when we uh, arrived at the spring of 1820 in Prince Edward Island. So, um, so yes, uh, Ember. Okay, good. Excellent. I, I will have to learn that and, uh, and then go and visit and take your tour, right? That's right. It's one there of the first go. things that I teach uh, people that I, I mostly uh, show American tourists around Edinburgh. And so one of the first things I teach them is uh, how to say it properly so that they're not humiliated on the streets. Well, there you go. Like in th this way, having this warning right up from the front means <laughs> that all our none of our listeners are like sitting there chafed, you know, like, who, who is this? You know, like, <laughs> what's going on? You know, they can't even pronounce this. Simple word, <laughs> yeah, like it's spelled right exactly. there for you, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I'm pleased to have you. You actually are live from, from Scotland, right? That's right, where it is raining and threatening to snow. It's very cold as well. Yeah. So, um, well, we're, right now we're, we're the opposite. We're, we're snowing and threatening to rain. So that's yeah. the, the situation here. So we're just going to trade a little bit later in the day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so welcome to the, the show, Jenny. So glad to, to have you here and uh, uh, particularly a sort of long-term uh, LMMI conference person. And so let's let's start with books. Uh, Modcast listeners are avid readers. We love to talk about the books on our bedside table. And so right now I'm reading, I'm reading sort of Montgomery's novels in order and then reading Betsy Epperly's Fragrance of the, of Sweetgrass with them, right? So, or like mm -hmm. after each one. Um, I've read it before, but this time I'm really kind of paying attention, I guess. And so I just finished Anne's House of Dreams and then I'm sort of queuing up a Rainbow Valley sort of maybe... Uh, thinking about doing an audiobook this time. But I'm also reading Susanna Clark's Regency era fairy tale book, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, uh, which is huge. It's this like big thick tome i've actually had to get a brace in order to to read it properly um uh and and getting treated for tendonitis what about yourself what are you reading these days uh well i'm not reading uh that although there's a really good uh tv adaptation that was on uh, the bbc a few years yeah. ago here so i have actually not read the book but i did love the tv adaptation oh great uh what am I reading just now? I did write it down because I'm not very good often at remembering the names of the books that I have been reading, partly because I don't read physical books very much anymore. I mostly read on my Kindle. We have a very small apartment that's overspilling with books. So I mostly right. read on my Kindle. And um, I don't know about you, but I've found that uh, the pandemic and lockdown has not been very 
good for my ability to read. Uh, so I, I, I do read a lot of crime because I can read, but you can read it quickly and it engages a different part yeah. of your brain in much the same way that Ellen Montgomery would re compulsively read crime books and detective books in the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, so the last three books I've read have all been by writers who live in Edinburgh. Oh, so right. I read Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. It's oh, a book that, yeah. about Shakespeare's son Hamnet and his death. It's, a, it's very full of grief and loss. Wonderful book. I also read uh, Val McDermott's Still Life and Ian Rankin's A Song for Dark Times. Mm two crime books by Edinburgh writers. One of the things I did with a bunch of friends in the first lockdown is we had a lockdown bingo because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> so when you were on your daily exercise, you would try to spot things. And both Val McDermott and Ian Rankin live fairly near where I do. And so you'd get points if you saw them on your daily walk, except we saw Val so often that yes. actually you, you, you only get like one point for spotting her now. <laughs> So, uh, right, yes, yeah. those two. And uh, what, I, what I'm actually reading just now is a book called Blood and Sugar by a woman called Laura Shepherd Robinson. So oh. it's historical crime set not too different from where you are with your Jonathan Strange. It's mm. like 1780s and yeah. it's to do with the slave trade in London. So it's set in Deptford and London and there is a crime happened and some slave traders are implicated. And so mm. it's kind of a mix of races and different things going on. So I'm enjoying that a lot. And the next thing I have lined up is Shuggy Bain, um, the Booker Prize winner, Douglas right. Stewart, another Scottish book, gritty, set in Glasgow, the 1980s, and it's going to be very depressing, but that's the next one I'm going to read. <laughs> it's going to be very depressing. It'll be great. Yeah, great. Scottish and dark and depressing and great. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Scottish crime, murder, death. That's where I am with my reading just now. <laughs> yeah, every now and then I get a hang... I guess, uh, so I, I read a lot of fantasy literature, so, so that has that kind mm. of level of escape and quick movement. Uh, I mean... Not not all of it there's literary uh speculative fiction as well but like so already i get quite a lot of that but when i get a hankering just for kind of useless books and not 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 that you mentioned those exactly but like <laughs> uh but like pulp fictiony kind of stuff it's like it's spy novels i want to read for some reason like russian like soviet era spy novels and and they're not even they're not always terribly <laughs> redemptive like you know like i like the jack ryan tom glancy character it's kind of one of those embarrassing uh, things you admit late late at night at a dinner party rather than um i don't i don't mind a bit of a spy thing but i'd rather do a crime thing than a spy thing if i'm slick I, like i i would never I, I don't really read like romance books very much yeah. or that kind of chiclet thing i don't enjoy at all which might surprise people given that i spent so long spending uh, reading montgomery but i don't tend to 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 read that kind of book but i would read quite a lot of crime so what's like so but i mean she she does like romance is kind of important but i guess i don't ca like i i've never been able to categorize montgomery as just a romance writer like it's i've always felt like there was some other element that was drawing me in and that love stories were part of uh something a larger cycle like are the like am i misreading montgomery are they actually chiclet or like, no i don't think I, I don't think they are at all and i think that those kind of love story marrying off elements that are, her, are in her books are there because she was expected to write them, that they were expected to be part of the story you were telling if you were a woman writing at that time. Apart from The Blue Castle, which is very mm -hmm. much, uh, it's a chiclet kind of book. And, and in a good way, I don't mean that as a pejorative statement. Sure. You know, I think it's one of her best books. and. Yeah, but I think otherwise, the books are they're more about yourself and finding yourself than they are about finding love. Yeah, I to me, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Like, to me, I guess I'm, um, you know, 
yeah for me i guess it's the characters or like the idea of imaginary landscapes that kind of open up before me as i read sometimes a turn of phrase but often those are landscape sort of based right the mm -hmm. most sort of poetic moments but yeah so i guess i didn't yeah i guess but I, i'm a boy reading girls books right i mean she was pretty conscious oh. of writing oh. for for girls right so although she uh, she, she often noted when she got a letter from a man right you know uh this priest or prime minister sent me a note that kind of thing yeah i i think it varies i think it's one of those statements that maybe you can't make a blanket generalization about her career like that hmm. i don't think that when obviously and is a book for girls in some ways but it also fits into lots of general markets and i think when, when i study montgomery when i read montgomery it's very much with an eye on the popular market she she served an apprenticeship writing for magazines she was very aware of mm. what editors wanted and what audiences wanted to read because she had to make money from her fiction and so although Anne is in some ways a classic girl story, and that's certainly how it's marketed nowadays, it also fitted into certain categories, for example, like the regional idyll or something that, was, that, that were very popular at the time and had a general readership. Mm. So I think that's how she starts her career. But then things change because once you have that hit, that great hit novel, then you're subject to other pressures coming in. So if readers re are responding to Anne and younger readers want to know what happens to Anne next and who Anne will marry, then if you're serving that audience, you start writing those kind of books. And then as we get into the 1930s, where she is very aware that she needs to keep writing and keep selling books because she's lost so much money in the stock market crash, then you come up with like... She's she's in a different market where movies are taking off, where Shirley Temple's a big hit, and she starts writing with an eye to that market as well, and maybe writing more for girls too. So it's something that changes over her career. She tries to be different kinds of writers, writing for different kinds of audiences. So you get her in the 30s also, or late 20s, writing books for adults like The Blue Castle or A Tangled Web. Yeah, she's a pretty smart business person in the sense of understanding Mark. Like if you look at her letters, even more than her journals, mm -hmm. there's just the lists and lists of magazines. And Absolutely. I think they found those lists, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. And you know, well, we, we could talk with about whether that was a Scottish influence or not, that kind of <laughs> Scotsman on the make kind of business attitude, perhaps. Uh, but yes, I mean, if you, if you look at her, for example, her, her correspondence with uh, Weber or with Macmillan, those mm. were, were pen friendships that grew up because they were all writers trying to make it and they hoped by writing to each other in kind of this circle of literary friendship that they would all you know enhance each other's careers and give each other good tips and tell each mm. other where to publish and so on so yeah. she's very much she's a jobbing author in a lot of ways if you know what yeah. I mean she, yeah yeah absolutely yeah and she was i don't think like she certainly wasn't apologetic about that like before she became no. uh, or just in the early days after she i think that's just this is my trade like i i, I make money at this and so i'm mm -hmm. going to do it mm -hmm. well right yeah absolutely absolutely yeah so like how how then like so you're telling me about all these kind of like uh uh spooky and crime-ridden edinburgh authors <laughs> like so how, how so how do you get to montgomery how do you get to pei what's that story there Serendipity is mm. definitely coming into play here. Uh, uh, this story could take up our entire podcast, so I'll try to keep it very brief. <laughs> like a lot of girls, I read some of the Anne books. Probably where I started when I was about 12. My uncle, so both my dad's brother and my mom's brother migrated to America in that 1960s drain of people from Scotland. Mm -hmm. My dad's brother went to Guelph, of all places, first of all, uh, and then the States, and he sent me a copy of Anne Green Gables. And I did not read it because I did not like the look of the girl on the front cover. So <laughs> <laughs> typical. Uh, so I read them when I was kids. 
kind of didn't go back to them until I was doing my undergraduate degree. And I did a course on North American literature and society, and we read Alcott and Montgomery. Mm. And I kind of got back into them again. But um, my tutor was very into them. He was male and Irish and a historian. And this is Owen Dudley Edwards. And I could see that he was really enthusiastic about them. And when I finished my degree and was casting up for something to do, I do not know where it came from. But we had lunch one day and I said, you know, I was thinking of doing a PhD on L.M. Montgomery. I have no idea what made me say it. But it turned out that he had met Mary Rubio. He had met Mary Rubio at a function in Edinburgh when Mary was over here uh, researching Montgomery's honeymoon trip to Scotland and they had met and he had went up to her and I, I've talked to them both about this meeting since and Mary said she had no idea who this well he looks a bit like you Brendan he has a big beard it comes up to her and you know academic men they didn't know who Montgomery was but he came up to her and not only did he know who Montgomery was but he quoted the entire naming scene from magic for marigold at her and she was completely blown away and he was completely charmed to meet her and so when I said I think I might do a PhD on Montgomery. He said, well, I know Mary Rubio. It'll all happen. It'll all be wonderful. And, and that's how it happened. He was my supervisor. He paired me up with a wonderful Scottish folklorist called Margaret Bennett, who had mm-hmm. done lots of research about um, Scots in Quebec and whose father, George, used to have a summer house at St. Peter's in PEI. So mm. it all just came together and the, uh, these like strange connections. And yeah, old gr- grandmother, young grandmother and magic for Marigold brought us wow. all together. That's a, so that's, that's how I got there. <laughs> no, that's a, that's super. And of course, Owen Dudley Edwards is a fairly um, uh, prominent or noted um, his, historian. Yeah. Um, and so that's a, a great opportunity. Do you like so then you do you view yourself as like a scholar of space or a historian? Like, is there a way that you describe the way that you approach Montgomery? Because there's certainly if you look at your CV, there's a real sp- space is a real line, like a backgrounds context. That's a, a real uh, thread that goes through the work. How, how do you describe kind of what you're doing? I guess literary historian would mm. it, something that my, like my degree was in history and literature. So my PhD was taken in a history department, but obviously there's lots of literature in it. And I did it with a folklorist. So it is interdisciplinary, but it mostly comes from a history background. I think what draws me to Montgomery, but it, it, it's kind of like a literary detective almost, if you know what I mean. Mm. I think her work... there's something about not not just her work but her life that draws you in to try and solve puzzles to to try and find the answer partly because you know uh pieces of work were lost pieces of but there is life writing and there's not just the fiction and there's letters and there's diaries and then there's diaries within diaries and it's like excavating all the time to, mm. to try and get to some, I, I don't know, some truth or some answer. And I think we that, that lots of us who are engaged in Montgomery scholarship are engaged in this just in different ways. So you have um, people like Beth Cavert going around and finding all the people that were connected to Montgomery and trying to find out through those routes. Or you get uh, Carolyn Collins or Donna Campbell trying to find stories that are missing to try and piece together all the work and piece together scrapbooks or, or Chrissy Wooster and her daughters. And I think we all try to do this kind of scrapbooking and picking up the pieces and that I very much come in at it from the history angle because I'm interested in the Scottish background it's trying to uh, work backwards and see where we get to I I find it fascinating and because she leaves little clues everywhere doesn't she but nothing is because everything is constructed um it it, it makes a very interesting process I think you you never quite get to the answer but I always think it's, it's very tantalizing you think you can solve that crime if you just have enough clues 
Right. Well, so I was just going to mention, like you, you, you listed <laughs> off with, with some strength, five crime novels at the beginning of our conversation. <laughs> I think we understand the links. I mean, it's not a whodunit in the sense of a butler in the kitchen, you know, with oh. a poem. <laughs> oh, I've got a few whodunit theories. Already. Yeah, but, but yes. <laughs> there's, it's another, it's another kind of whodunit. Like, uh, so I, I read your piece on the Scotsman, the scribe and the spyglass, which is looking at, sorry, is it Charlie McNeil? No, what? What's the name Charles of the McNeil. Yeah, Charles, Charles McNeil? McNeil. Yeah. yeah, who was uh, um, uh, who lived just up the hill from where I grew up uh, in New Glasgow, Prince Edward Island, which is just uh, just south of Cavendish, and so he he was sort of like a spy, I guess, or community gossip, or at least a journalist, Absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you went through and and um, seeing, I guess, the way that Montgomery reforms, or how, what's the phrase that you would use for what she does with with Cavendish and Prince Edward Island? Well, I, I think it's interesting. Montgomery's books, I think, at their core, whether we debate whether they're romances or whatever, they're about place, maybe not so much space, as you were saying, but place. And that goes in two ways. It, Partly they're about homes, so we can see that in the title, you know, Green Gables, New Moon, whatever. So it's about search for, for home. But also they're regional books, they're about a location. And so I'm interested in how she portrays that location. Mm. So, you know, I, I think I went into my research thinking... Um, here are some Scottish people, they migrated to Canada, they lived in this place, let's see what kind of Scottish things they still did, you know, what folkways happened, what <laughs> customs and so on. And then you, you don't need to be in Montgomery's writing very long to um, become aware of the editing of the landscape, the editing of the place, what she leaves in, what she leaves out. So in much the same way as um, Anne with a knee, kind of went into what was left out in yeah. the, uh, you know, in the story of Anne. Charles McNeil's diary, so he, he was a farming neighbour, as you say, and he kept a diary, which to most people would be very boring to read. It's just about what happens on his farm and what crops there are and who, which of his neighbours is coming round and who's doing what. Um, he kept this diary, but the diary was preserved. And then Montgomery copied it into her own diary. And so I like looking at these other selves, these other diaries within diaries to try and put them all together to get um, a more nuanced picture, I guess, of, of the world to then use that to see how see the ways in which Montgomery edited her world because that tells us a lot about um, how Scottish her background was, which elements she decided to put in her fiction, but also what other elements of Scotland she might have incorporated into that world that weren't necessarily there, but she had perhaps read about them in books with a Scottish setting or with a Scottish feel to them and realize that uh, this sells quite well. So if I invoke this element of Scottishness or Scottish romance, then I, I can use it to build my sense of place. It, it, it's very multi-layered. Um, yeah. But Charles, Charles McNeil's fasc fascinating. For a start, he's a male spying on the community. And <laughs> I think from Montgomery's fiction, we're very used to it being Mrs. Rachel Lind and her all-seeing eye that mm. is, is looking out for the community. And the fact that in reality, it was maybe something quite different. And I find it very interesting. And I find his diary interesting to read because it, it shows a completely different picture of the world, a completely different picture of Cavendish than Avonlea would make you see in your mind's eye. Or a completely different world. Yeah, it, like in particular, I think in Avonlea, we have a village and we don't, I mean, we we have a stretch of farming connected places in, in Cavendish, right? And it's not that there isn't like a downtown Cavendish in history, um, but some of those being inns and things like that now, but it's not, it's not a very large cluster of no. homes. Yeah. No, and but she, but if you read her 
journals or her letters to um, George Macmillan, that is exactly what she describes. She describes a long stretched out, I think she even says, you know, three miles long, one mile wide. That yeah. it's, it's a series of homesteads across a piece of land. Um, what, I, what I love about when you go to Cavendish now is that Avonlea Village, the I hesitate to call it a theme park, I don't know what you call it, is is sold as a representation of Avonlea within the place that Avonlea was based on, that is Cavendish, except the fictional one plonked in the middle looks nothing like Cavendish. It looks like, to me, I always think it's like something out of Tom Sawyer, you know, the white picket fences and everything gathered around a little square, which is just not what exists in Prince Edward Island at all, and certainly not in Cavendish. Again, so you get these layers of of trying to create and recreate place. But, you know, Cavendish is long, it's spread out, and it doesn't, if you read the diaries, if you read Montgomery's own diaries and maybe the um, comic diary that she wrote with Nora Lafergie, if you, if you start putting that in as well, a, a completely different picture emerges of um, the weather and how horrible it is, how much people have to pull together, but how much they become isolated within their own homesteads because the weather is terrible and you can't get out or you you don't go to church every Sunday because the minister is covering three different congregations and he can't get between them and the mud is terrible. This whole world that you don't see in Avonlea. Or yeah, anybody. and you well, and you get those cryptic phrases like "there's preaching today," like that, and that'll mm-hmm. be a whole line. But that was a whole code to this happened to be the circuit moment and thing. But the fact that the Baptist Church and the Presbyterian United Church are so far apart shows mm-hmm. you the nature of the community. Whereas, like just south in Glasgow, the churches are just right across the bridge from one another, right? They, the Presbyterian and the, well, they call uh, well, it the church, yeah. Yeah, well, it was a very acrimonious split in Cavendish between Yes, the, that's right. Yeah, that one wasn't very nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was the it was the opposite in New Glasgow, actually. They, they've uh, shared um, Sunday school and, and ministers for quite some time at, and women's society, things like that. So, um, so okay, but uh, so, so you talk about the framing, the curating, the editing, the representing. I mean, um, you're right about we have this kind of mythical image of Cavendish Avonlea. Um, mm. She got, I think, fan mail um, written to Avonlea, right? I oh, think I should think so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, as the place. So uh, let's. Uh, but but I, I think aren't we as kind of maybe as sort of S- S- Scottish ilk? Are we? inclined to do that and i ask because my family is you know as i said from scotland but we've got all these stories and now that historians are kind of digging in and really getting kind of uh records and data and land things and everything it it looks like some of the stories just can't be historically true so not just improbable but impossible so um did did, uh, montgomery do this like was there a sense that uh she in a sense, uh, had recreated Scotland in her mind or had been given a Scotland that wasn't really there in her mind? Um, or, or uh, yeah, d- or does that echo forward more truly in her works? Can you, do you want to talk about that? I, I, I just know so little about it, but I think you know something about it. Yes, where to start? Montgomery told origin stories about mm. her Scottish antecedents. She... Obviously, the Montgomerys, so her paternal family, and the McNeils, her maternal family, were both from Scotland. And so she had a number of stories that she told and that she repeated throughout her life. Interestingly, because obviously she was the most famous member of her family, the stories that she um, tells become the blueprint in their turn because everyone believes what she says. And then they get incorporated into other island histories. It becomes the definitive account, uh, her stories. So we have Hugh Montgomery, Mary McShannon, and Here I Stay, that that they were meant to be going somewhere else. And then they landed in Prince Edward Island, yada, yada, yada. And this um, idea of John McNeil, the first McNeil being this um, 
great single man and stroppy and combative and you know that these these narratives about all these uh branches of her families when, when you start going into records which she wasn't able to do of course i think they're all really made up i i i i, I don't see there are there fragments fragments of stories but the most important thing i think to remember about um montgomery and her links to scotland is that they knew nothing. They knew nothing. It had all been lost. They had no ongoing connections to anyone in Scotland. They had Montgomery had very, very hazy notions about where her family were from and why they came to Prince Edward Island. And I, it's in this, in this context, it's very important to know that her ancestors came to Prince Edward Island very very early in the yeah. migration process 70, 70, so, 1780s, things like yeah, that. Seven, mm-hmm. and, you know, wait, 1771 the Montgomery 1775 John McNeil wow. so they were there before the American War of Independence cut off they it cut off from the rest of the world um there's some hostilities there's worries about the war of independence and who will be dragged in the governor is taken off on a ship at what you know there's lots going on and it i, I um jm bumstead who big historian of, of uh prince edward Island, the region has has talked a lot about um that this time gave the people who lived on the island, St. John's Island as it was then, a completely uh, different perspective, an insulated perspective. And I think it's interesting to think of Montgomery's answer. That, you know, say there were a thousand residents then and in very few communities in a hostile environment and they're all trapped there and they can't get word in and they can't get word out and no one is arriving. And I think it accounts for a lot that um that, that goes on in her family's island narratives when they're there uh and and where they settled and who they married uh their political involvement and so on i think it's all set up in those early years and i wouldn't be surprised if some of it was even set up in scotland the montgomery's and the mcneils were from the same part of scotland they were connected to the same scottish families especially the stuart family that was so big in early island history uh but but the result of this is that Montgomery knew so little about her family. And so she wrote, stories would be handed down, but oral history is, is very woolly and very dodgy. And it tends to latch on to other stories. So if there's a narrative about a ship that was meant to go one place and went somewhere else, it's quite easy to write your family into that story, even if it didn't happen to them. Mm, and yeah. and and so that by the time we move forward, you know, a uh, hundred years to Montgomery being born, this is all gone. So she knows she's Scottish, but she can't, she can't say whether her origins are Highland or Lowland. And so she makes assumptions about her origins based on other cultural stuff that is going on at the time. Yeah. So if, if you're, so except for example, so she's born 1874. By then, lots of very poor clearance migrants have arrived in Canada. If you're a prosperous farmer in Prince Edward Island, you don't really want to be associated with this, maybe with Irish potato famine victims, but with cleared people from Scotland. That is not your story. And so you make up another story for yourself that distances you and makes you a different kind of Scottish person, if you know what I mean. And I think yeah. there's a lot of that kind of, of revision going on that she that not just her, but her her relatives are looking around at the other people and they're picking the camp they're in almost. Yeah. And so I think with with her husband, Ewan MacDonald, he's very much cast as a cultural other 
to he's a Highlander. He's a Gaelic-speaking Highlander. He's not as well educated. He fits into lots of Scottish stereotypes. And she glosses over the fact that her ancestors were also from Argyllshire, so in the, in the Scottish Highlands. Mary McShannon, how more Gaelic can you get than that? But uh, that, that's glossed over because that's not who she wants to be. She wants to be an enterprising Lowland Scot and she wants Cavendish to be a Lowland Scots community, even though I don't think it really was. And if you're at all familiar with um, Mike Kennedy's work on, on Scots and Prince Edward Island, you know, he, he will say that Cavendish was probably a Highland Scots community but these things were lost they were lost so quickly in yeah. that new environment where there wasn't the ongoing contact because her ancestors did, were part of a big community migration that you would find on some of these ships that came to early Prince Edward Island you know you get a whole community uh, yeah. that that's not what her family did and I think it was easy for them to carve new identities mm. And then yeah. she keeps on carving that. It's a very long answer to it because, uh, but I think I think you you know I've talked with Mary Rubio quite a lot about Montgomery's Scottish origins, and it, Montgomery always has like she wants to connect the Montgomerys to the Earls of Eglinton and these like aristocratic lines, sure. and you're like, but your ancestors were wee farmers from South End, you know they. <laughs> <laughs> they had too many children and they, they weren't badly off but you know you're there's not this. connected to this lineage but there's a desire to write yourself into a narrative whether it's a narrative about like with John McNeil she she likes to write him into sort of Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Stuarts and he had to get out of Scotland because of the clampdown and it's like well no not really I think he was probably allied with the Stuart family of Campbelltown who'd had some dispute about herring but you know that that narrative doesn't sell so well when you are constructing the alpine path the story of my career what made me the person I am today you want to tell your readers that you come from great solid Scottish stock that one of your ancestors might have been a poet and you latch on to these narratives because they construct the author people want you to be so the great uh, the great herring debate of 1770 isn't going yeah, to Yeah, you know. yeah. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, it's difficult. And I think, you know, I did my PhD, but it was finished 20 years ago. So when I think now about how many more records and genealogical mm, stuff sure. is around, you could probably go and revise everything I said now. And I think more and more would come out about her ancestors in Scotland and maybe we'd be able to get closer to finding out why they went to Prince Edward Island. Sure, sure. But I mean, I think your thesis of reimagination is still going to roughly be the same. Yeah. yeah. I, yes. Yeah. And I think too, some of the repatterning might be, and here I'm speaking kind of more on the literary religious studies side, but you get you know, patterns like, I don't know, Walter Scott's and the Burns poetry and religious conversion narratives and things like that. People pattern those into the mm -hmm. new world, into the echoes of generations that come much later that I think would be all part of that kind of retelling the story. So it's never, I think, I mean, it might be a conscious lie at some point, but not not usually in the generation that's receiving that well, right? No, I, and I think for Montgomery, her connections to Scotland were principally through literature yes that's the scotland she knew the scotland she knew is the one that she read about in sir walter scott i always beth always laughs about me doing my it was she scottish or walter scottish because <laughs> this is what you have to ask yourself so when when i take anne shirley for example you know she comes into avonlea and tells people not not really about her family about about every scottish book she's read in the royal reader every scottish poem they're all scottish apart there's one caroline norton who's irish is the only one in her long list who is not scottish and Anne's always walking around um paraphrasing scott i don't think she, i don't think montgomery's even aware some of the time and the haunted wood has always seemed to me driven by robert burns and the description of the haunted wood in tam o'shanter uh, you know it, it 
it seeps through her characters, it seeps through her, um, that this Scottish literary heritage. And you see it most clearly when she goes to Britain uh, on her honeymoon, that she goes to Scotland and England. So, you know, her grandmother, Lucy Woolner, was born in England. But when she goes to England, she traces out her grandmother's roots. She goes to the house where her grandmother lived. She meets with people that knew her grandmother's family. When she goes to Scotland, she doesn't make any attempt whatsoever to find out anything about her connection to Scotland because she doesn't have it. She would not know where to start. Uh, literary sites and castles and all that she's a literary tourist she's a standard late victorian rodian literary tourist who goes around everything she's read about in Walter scott in robert burns and jm barry and and lives through the history and the retelling of scottish history and you know she buys a package tour basically you know almost like a literary package tour to scotland (laughs) and none of it is about her connection to the land and it's not even it's quite puzzling that it's not even about ewan's connection so he's on his honeymoon in scotland now he (laughs) unlike her has already spent time in scotland in edinburgh in Glasgow. Oh, he went to school in Glasgow? He, he, yeah, he studied in Glasgow. Sure. But obviously, we don't know what he got up to. No, no, he, he went there. to school. Well, apart Glasgow. from, yeah, yeah, he yeah. clutched his head a lot. But, um, yeah, uh, that's right. But, you know, I'd really love to know whether he had gone to the Isle of Skye because yeah. that's where his family were from. And they only left in the 1840s. So they really were clearance Highlanders, Ewan's yeah. family. Um, but on his honeymoon, I mean, you know, he might as well not have been there really for all the impact he had on the itinerary. She clearly was paying for the jaunt and decided exactly where they were going and planned it all out. I think he had no input whatsoever. Uh, she and, planned it for years, I think, in her mind. Oh, so. absolutely, absolutely. And probably would have preferred to go alone than with you. And I think, in, <laughs> in all honesty, we know that. She does make some comment, doesn't she, in the journals about, you know, if she she would have liked to spend the money she made on a jaunt to Scotland and Ireland, but people, uh, Scotland and England, but people would have thought she was crazy for suggesting it. So she didn't go and it was only when she was married that it was respectable i guess to go to go so you know yeah it's funny you know like i've uh, one of my puzzles jenny and 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 we're, we're letting ourselves get away i think um which is just fine that's what this is for yeah one of my puzzles is why and and i don't think we have an answer exactly but why montgomery doesn't do good things for herself Right, and I uh, think she's, she's a Presbyterian. <laughs> I think she's a, uh, and a Scottish, uh, uh, a Scott, uh, you know, Presbyterian in that yeah, sense. Yeah. It's Presbyterian, like she, she does have some of the echoes of culture, a profound sense of duty. Um, but there was a kind of like my sort of Scotch Presbyterian-ish uh, uh, par- grandparents, you know, ish. when they could finally ish ish, yeah, because it's you know we were. Um, uh, uh, dissidents, I guess they were. Um, uh, some generations later, uh, like I mean, they're sort of proud, like when they retire, and they can take a trip to Scotland and Ireland, right? So that's actually, yeah. I mean, not a not a, a real pride, but like there's something in them that suddenly they're released from that that duty that they've spent decades and decades, you know, uh, on the farm. Not uh, not always successfully. They were, um, uh, you know, they they remember the. Uh, they were born in 1919, so they remember the 30s, uh, and so for them that um, I think they waited that long before they did those sorts of things. Montgomery didn't have, mm-hmm. I think, that long. She needed to do those nice things at at various points of her life. I think she needed interventions that didn't didn't come for her, right? So that she didn't choose, right? I mean, I think yes, and, and this is another point that you'd probably make about when we're talking about the Scottish context of Montgomery. So we can talk about that kind of the top layer almost, which I think is the the literary influence, this uh, Scotland she read about, Scotland she saw, the Scotland, the image of Scotland that was um, very alive in popular culture. That's kind of the top layer. And then we go below it to 
the Scottishness of the community that she lived in and of her family, the bits that were lost and the bits that, that were still there in a very sort of explicit and self-conscious way. But then you have to dig down even further to the what part of us is Scottish that we don't even realise is Scottish. And that kind of Presbyterian thing would be there very much, this... Um, it being sinful to find pleasure in ev- in anything would be mm. very Scottish Presbyterian. Yeah. Uh, the well, the watching yeah, I... your neighbours and policing your neighbours and so on. I think. Sure, but then there's like story and I mean, they loved intellectual pursuit, particularly, you know, um, like Walter Scottish Scott loves the mm-hmm. intellectual pursuit, right? So, but of course, I don't know, right? I mean... Uh, so I, like I don't know because I'm the I'm I'm just her like a, a hundred years later right because I, so I was <laughs> with a beard <laughs> yeah that's with a beard yeah that's right I guess we have a little different figure too but like the like you know my people came in the you know 1820 so I have some um you know, you know McNeils and Woolners and like all that in my family line but they're all from Prince Edward Island they're not mm-hmm. um they're not old country connections are yeah. all because i'm in new glasgow like the glaswegian settlement right yeah. um, and a, a different kind of people not farmers but tinkers who land here to become okay. farmers right so it's a different sort of setting and all that kind of stuff so i too don't like i'm still struggling to understand what what that really felt like to be in cavendish 125 years ago 130 years ago um that sort of thing that's still elusive even though i share kind of the lineage i was in the context it still is evading me a little bit maybe i'm too close to it i don't know but isn't there something about like maybe you don't know this but like why don't why do scots then create legends and not tell the stories when they come here because like our family was completely mute about their history for a a whole generation and then people start talking about the old world like they didn't leave behind like actual records like diaries and things like that Mm -hmm. um you know they 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 just didn't talk about it they didn't talk about the old world um with if if we talk about the montgomery's and the mcneil's again I, i do think you come back to this insular perspective they developed and I think their focus was very much on what they were going to be in in this new place rather than what had gone before Mm. um uh for Mm. the McNeils I think a lot of it was about establishing political allegiance and that became then religious allegiance when they took up with the Simpsons and the Clarks to found Cavendish. Uh, I don't know, myth-making, when when does it come in? When do they become interested? Are they interested? I I, I don't think Montgomery was actually that interested in what her Scottish family did, do you think? Or maybe it's just then was too elusive, you know, if, if we move through time with it. There, there's n- there would have no way of finding out anything yeah. about her family in Scotland. No way of finding out. There were mm. no connections at all. And, it, was, and in her books, there are no connections, are there? Not real, not real, but, not like actual connections. No, I mean that like her grandfather was a inveterate storyteller. Um, her and I think an aunt, one of her aunts, sort of was a, yeah. a chatty storyteller anyway, and or like uh, a sculptor of words anyway. And so there's some poetry there, but for the most part, I think that's entertainment. That's kitchen, uh, kitchen conversation um, in the evening. Uh, rather than a whole like it's not quite like captain jim whose whole life is sculpted uh and <laughs> he sculpts all of life right um but maybe that maybe that's what she imagined you know her grandfather could have been or something like that what the storyteller could be yeah i mean, there's definitely a strong this strong oral culture in the mcneils that the mcneils are storytellers and but there may be more of the um, cousin Jimmy rather than Captain Jim. You know, that, that it's definitely more of that. Well, that's a literal one. Right, yeah, there, yeah. there is one. Yeah, of the there is one. That, but, that, I, but, you know, I, he yeah. seems to have been not atypical of the McNeils or how she portrays 
the McNeil relatives, that they would write poems, tell stories, gather people around uh, yeah, to share the fact, but not not so much family legends. Although you know, Aunt Mary was the family legend teller. Yeah, that's um, it. Yeah. But um, they they were writing about the world in which they were living in Prince Edward Island. They were writing little poems and stories of PEI. I think. Well, I think one of the differences is, um, and I think we'll tie things up here. Montgomery writes writes herself. As you said, she writes that story. She sculpts it. Um, we're a literate century, a literate generation. And so that's kind of how we spoke. But of course, in past generations and certain communities, oral stories were living in a way that written stories weren't, right? Uh, we feel a loss because they're not written down. Mm. But of course, they lived in a new kind of way, right? Or a different kind of way than, than probably we um, connect with exactly um, until we meet a storyteller and then we see yeah. a glimpse of it but they, they weren't made for writing down they were made no, for no. sharing at, at some kind of community event or with your family or in the kitchen as you say they weren't yeah yeah they were never designed to be written yeah you sit at the table you eat you, you know pick at the food you you know drink of it and and uh, the fire's going or the yeah. cats on the, the evenings lap. are dark and long yeah. <laughs> evenings are dark and long and, and it's time for a story yeah. um i i think that let you know with uh with our it becomes written right we read and things like that so um yeah well that's that's interesting i want to i want to close um so normally we we, we kind of a little louder and we have kind of a closing quotation and so i, I always ask the guests uh kind of breaking the the fourth wall here a bit i always ask the guests to provide a nice kind of lovely quotation well jenny provided me a whole bunch of really nice things i couldn't decide and i didn't know how much time <laughs> we would have but and... uh, yeah we can't we can't do them all but what i want to do is read just um and then we'll close but to re uh, i'll ask one more question then we'll close read just a couple here that i think really fit with what we ended up talking about so one is from emily's quest uh in the the emily emily trilogy the materials of story weavings are the same in all ages and places, births, deaths, marriages, scandals. These are the only really interesting things in the world. Okay, so that's one uh, way of putting things. Because um, I think we want to tr trouble that a little bit. But And then uh, I assume this is Sarah Stanley speaking in The Story Girl in the next one here. Um, mm. I, I think there are two kinds of true things, true things that are and true things that are not, but might be. Um, so do we like, is that sort of, do we have attention in how storytelling works there or do we have uh, uh, growth or loss in storytelling works or just different character perspectives? Um, you know, uh, what was it that draw you to, to put those uh, lovely quotations down? Uh the births, marriages, death scandals. That makes me laugh. It's, and especially as so much of Montgomery's books are to do with scandalous births, scandalous yeah. marriages, and yeah, especially sure. scandalous deaths. Uh, it makes me laugh. And I think, okay, one point I'd emphasize is that what draws me to Montgomery's work is her sense of humor. She uh -huh. really makes me laugh. The books really make me laugh. Uh, and and that quote makes me laugh as well and mm. I do think that it's almost sometimes when I read her books I'm not actually following the the main narrative I'm not following the romantic Teddy Kent or anything I can't be doing with him uh what I'm what I'm looking at is the fabric beneath it, the world that's beneath it, the communities beneath it. And that's why that quote appeals to me, because I think that's where we get really into the kernel of, of portraying a Scots-Canadian life. Uh, the second quote, the one about true things that are, might be, that's how I, that, that, in the conclusion of my thesis, I used that quotation, mm. which is why I highlighted it here. Because... You know, you spend all this time doing detective work and trying to work out whether Hugh Montgomery really was going to Quebec or whether he was going to Prince Edward Island and why they stayed there. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. What matters is why she would tell the story the way she did. Mm -hmm. And 
and, and that's what I like to try and get into. If it's telling the truth slant, as someone said, yeah. why tell the truth slant? And I think uh, this becomes even more interesting when you're dealing with a famous and popular writer. And I like considering Montgomery from, from that perspective of her of, of the price of fame, but also the power of fame, she had so much control. What she wrote down would be definitive for a generation. Okay, we've started unpicking her now and, and seeing the bits where she razored out pages of her diaries and so on. <laughs> but she had a lot of control and a lot of power over the truth or what might be the truth. And I think it, it's very interesting. But then she had all this pressure as a famous person to tell a certain kind of truth that would be an acceptable truth. And so you get into these different layers with it. And I think that quote really kind of um, exposes a tension in her work as well, I think. There, there's some great, great line, it's in one of the Pat books about one of the aunties and who had died. And they, the girls are discussing it and they say, some people say she died of a broken heart and some people say she died of wearing too thin stockings in winter time. <laughs> and that that quote to me is one of my favorite Montgomery quotes because to me it sums up her whole work that we can read it as romantic and that brings us back to really where we started we we can read about broken hearts and beautiful nature and the sea and the landscapes but there will always be that little Scottish voice I would say that's little Scottish voice chopped chopping away at the edge of it, saying, nah, it was her stockings were too thin. She caught cold. That's why she died. <laughs> uh, and it is, it's that, it's a bit tall poppy syndrome as well. The Scottish voice will cut yeah. down the tall poppies and put this realism. And you get this tension between romance and realism and between truth and reality and between fantasy and reality in her books that, um, yeah, that makes them very interesting, makes yeah. her a very interesting person. Absolutely. Tell, tell the truth, but tell it slant. I think that's yeah. Emily Dickinson, if I'm not, if I'm yes. not mistaken. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So mm -hmm. let's, so, let's um, so just uh, as we close, what, what are you up to now, Jenny? What, what are you up to these days? We're, we're recording yeah. this, folks, in winter of 2021, for those that are, are listening in the future. Um, <laughs> and we're in the midst of various kind of rolling global lockdowns and stay-at-home orders. Uh, so what, what, what are you up to? Uh, what are you thinking about these days? What do you do these days? Well, Yes, Scotland, February 2021, uh, lockdown, stay-at-home orders until at least the end of the month. And so I have children at home who can't go to school. Uh, last year, no, the year before, 2019, I started um, doing some walking tours of Edinburgh. I've been uh, working for a tour company that runs out of Philadelphia called Context Travel. And I... Getting back into my history again and a bit of literature as well and taking people um, on small private expert walking tours of Edinburgh. Obviously that all had to stop. So I did my last walking tour on March the 10th, 2020. Wow. And, but since then, contacts have moved online and we do two things. We do uh, what are called context conversations. So those are kind of 90 minute seminars and we also have been doing courses so i've moved mm. into doing lots of uh teaching by zoom when when i have the time to put it together and i've done a mixture of stuff i did a course on children's literature coming at it from a harry potter and children's classics angle i mm. uh, did a history of edinburgh i've done some tours of Harry Potter in Edinburgh because obviously J.K. Rowling lives here all the books were written here so yeah. showing some of the influences on J.K. Rowling and I have been doing some Scottish stuff as well so I did a Hogmanay one at New Year and I a couple of weeks ago did a Robert Burns one and oh. now I'm thinking up what to do next might yeah. do something about the Edinburgh Festival might do something about Anne of Green Gables lots of people trying to persuade me to do an Anne of Green Gables one so well, I think we'll I think you know the text, so I guess that would. <laughs> but that's yeah. what worries me because I know them. I never shut up as you've. Uh, yeah, that's right. Experienced. <laughs> so you were doing walking tours. Now I guess you're doing sitting tours. I guess this would be the 
the, yeah. the transition yeah. to that it, one. Yeah. It is. And I am very eager to get back out on the streets again and Good. do proper tours because you meet people from all over and yeah, and Edinburgh's obviously a wonderful city awesome. to walk around. Yeah. You must come and visit. I have to come to visit. We have to. This, I think this, folks, this is an invitation for me specifically, <laughs> but but I think no, Edinburgh. It's an open invitation. Yeah, that's right. Everyone when the world opens, listening. I think we'll want to do that. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course, Scotland. Uh, uh, Scotland draws me. Although I, t- I have to tell you, when I thought my, f- where I was told my family was from Glasgow and then. I walked around Glasgow and I said, no, this can't be right. This is the wrong city. I'm in the wrong city. And it turned out it was Paisley, which I didn't go visit. So, like, Cause I was told it was Glasgow. So it turns out that sometimes the history maybe does matter uh, um, when, you, when you land in the wrong spot. So, yeah. I imagine it would have looked quite different Paisley. Um, yeah. A little, a little different. Yeah. A little yeah. Different. I wouldn't, I wouldn't base a lot of yeah, what happened no, to your family right. and what Paisley looks like now. No. Sure. And even then it's sort of like out, out in the bedroom communities of Paisley. It would would look more like Dorval, Ontario than Paisley, I'm sure, yes. even, even then. So, all right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for joining thank us. Thank you Annie. for the opportunity. It's uh, been fun. I'm a bit sad we haven't had the quick fire questions because obviously yeah. I have um, <laughs> waffled on too long. Well, I, th- I, th- I think we you probably know done... all about me anyway. You can probably guess the answers <laughs> yourself. <laughs> That's right. There we go. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shetty. Thank you. And as always, folks, you can check out uh, the work of the Ella Montgomery Institute at ellamontgomery.ca, including interactive features, guest blogs, news about conferences and calls for papers, the newest releases of the Journal of Ella Montgomery Studies, and links to digital resources like the beautiful online repository Kindred Spaces, which would also have some links to some of Jenny's work. And if you enjoyed the Modcast and would like others to enjoy it as well, please share it on social media and give us a rating. It, it does really help share the news, tell the story about the Modcast and the Institute's work. I'm your host, Brenton Dickerson, and I'm here with Technical Director Christy McKinney. Until next time, remember this other bit of wisdom I've stolen from Jenny's list from Ella Montgomery. There can't be any doubt that the exhortation to love our neighbor as ourselves is a proper and edifying one, but it is a hard thing to do when one has a neighbor like Susanna Johnson. From your neighbor, Brenton, to all you Modcast neighbors throughout the world, farewell. Farewell.